Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest international story and one of the most tragic was that of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. It's one of the greatest architectural treasures in the world and a sacred site for Catholics. It was engulfed by flames on Monday as it was undergoing renovations. The iconic spire collapsed and more damage was done before 400 firefighters were able to put out the blaze. We did an interview with an eyewitness who will tell us what it looked like. And my producer Miranda joins us for the rest to talk about what religious relics were inside and how the whole ordeal got started. Well, the fire started after there were renovations going on to repair the spire. It was open all day. There weren't any noticeable signs of renovation going on. And so there were people in there and As the last rush of visitors were trying to go in and see all the art and the sculptures and the statues and the beautiful nature of the building itself, they were greeted with doors slammed in their faces. They were kicked out and there wasn't a big explanation why until a few minutes later they saw the flames. Yeah, it's undergoing $6.8 million in renovations. They say the fire was potentially linked to this renovation work. Even uh, one of the investigators said that prosecutors are going to be investigating this as an involuntary destruction by fire. So there is not necessarily anybody to blame for this. It's linked to this renovation work. So let's talk to BJ James, who was there on his anniversary trip in Paris. He was there before the fire started and then went back later in the day to see the actual fire happen. For some witness reaction, we're going to talk to a friend of our producer, Miranda, BJ James. He's in Paris right now for his one-year anniversary, and he actually went to Notre Dame early in the day before the fire had started and returned back later after the fire had really started heating up. BJ, thanks for joining us. Tell us what you saw early in the day the first time you visited. We just went to visit. I I think a mass had ended around 10, and that's when we went to go check out the cathedral. You know, we got to tour inside a little bit. There's a lot of artwork in there from like the 1300s, uh, a lot of stained glass. There was a choir singing in there. We took a walk around the building as well. And you could definitely see on the backside, there were some renovation being done. You know, we kind of took, took note of that and took some pictures anyway. You know, we took pictures of the whole building. Was there active construction, renovation stuff happening while you were there? No, while we were there, I don't think we really noticed anything really going on, but there was scaffolding up. And I mean, I mean, a lot of these buildings, there's like always something going on there. Yeah. You know, there's always some kind of construction, it looks like. But I mean, there was definitely scaffolding around the back of the building. And, and I guess, yeah, near 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 the spire. Then we left and did some other tour stuff. We hit the Louvre and did some other museums. But yeah, Cafe had kind of caught our eye back over by Notre Dame. We went over there to grab some food and drinks. And we're sitting on the patio and we're probably you know, a few blocks from the cathedral, all of a sudden we kind of see some smoke. It just starts to look really hazy around us. What was really strange is the smoke that was coming through was turning, it was like yellow and kind of neon green. It was like these really strange colors. I was like, this is just strange. Some of the reports said that as the last rush of tourists were trying to get in for the day, the doors were abruptly shut without explanation. That's because the fire had started there. Uh, So you potentially were one of the last people to see the Notre Dame Cathedral in its original glory. It's going to be forever changed. Who knows 
how much they have to rebuild at this point. How were people taking it there? Because it's really a loss of one of the great structures in the world. Uh, I mean, it was really just shock. I mean, there were, there were some people crying and stuff, but people started coming out of everywhere and, and, and the streets were getting really full and packed with people. We walked over, we watched it for a good hour or so. It just got so crowded and there were embers coming down that were lit. Some were probably the size of quarters landing on the street and on people. Yeah, it's so tragic to hear that on his trip right there. There's so many priceless relics in there that people try to see all the time, painting statues. One of the biggest points of damage was the roof structure that's known as the forest that's been lost completely. They call it the forest because it took a forest to build. So this framework was from the 13th century. It consists mostly of oak. It dates has beams dating as far back from the 1100s. It says that the trees were cut down between the year 1160 and 1170, and some more current parts of that frame date back as far as 1220. So this thing is so old. And some of these other ancient relics that are there, things that are having to do with uh, Jesus Christ and the crucifixion, I know one of the centerpieces was the crown. The crown of thorns is kept in the cathedral it's encased in a gold and glass cover. There's also a piece of the cross that's held in the cathedral. They believe that's what Jesus was crucified on. There's this thing called the great organ. It's the largest organ in France. It's one of the most famous in the world. That dates back to the 1400s. There's, like you said, artwork and sculptures, including statues representing the 12 apostles and four evangelicals that were removed from the site just last week that were right underneath the spire. Yeah, Yeah. because of the renovation. So they actually lucked out with that. Those would be uh, lost. Removing those. So that's in part all of the the crazy ancient things that are there. And that's also why it's so important to Catholics throughout the world. It's, It's obviously a big tourist attraction. And while Notre Dame itself doesn't have a normal congregation, people that go there regularly, people visit it all the time for masses that they hold Uh, Every day. And it's Holy Week, right? Right. I completely didn't even realize that, you know, Sunday was Palm Sunday. This Friday is Good Friday. And Good Friday is the big day. That's when they bring out the crown. That's when they bring out the piece of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. They bring all these things out for people to to observe. And so it's just a really tragic thing that happened. The French President Emmanuel Macron said that they will be be rebuilding and they're actually going to try to raise money throughout the world for them to help rebuild. And they say outside of St. Peter's Basilica, which is in Vatican City, there is no more iconic place for Catholics than Notre Dame. A few updates since we recorded this story earlier in the week. The fate of several of the artifacts, there are a few that we do know, specifically the Crown of Thorns was saved. What else do we know that made it out? Yeah, the Crown of Thorns was saved, the Tunic of St. Louis, and several other major works are now in a safe place. Place, including the cathedral's 18th century organ that we mentioned. It's interesting. The firefighters actually created a human chain yeah. along with other workers there to do these like relic rescue efforts. The organ is still su- uh, suspect because there might be smoke and water damage to it, but it wasn't affected by the fire, at least. Speaking about water damage, there may be significant water damage on many of the large paintings inside the cathedral as well. As far as the parts of the true cross, Those remain unclear. We're not sure where those may be. Yeah, I've heard that they found the piece of the nail, but the piece of the cross, the wooden piece of the cross still is unclear. As far as the investigation that's ongoing, they have 50 investigators working on this, and they're saying that the fire was likely caused 
by an electrical short circuit. There weren't actually workers scheduled to be there during the time that the fire broke out. So they're not expecting any nefarious reasons. They do suspect that this is just some kind of freak accident. And remarkably, nobody was killed in the blaze, which occurred during a mass. So it's going to be a while. And finally, with the restoration efforts and rebuilding, there's been pledged donations from French billionaires, companies, ordinary citizens, and people all over the world. How much money have they raised so far? At this point, they've raised more than $1 billion. And that's just after a couple of days with the landmarks residents being like in the national psyche. Everyone's paying attention to this. But people on social media, both in France and abroad, even here at home in the United States, are expressing frustration that other disasters like uh, fallout from the Puerto Rican hurricane, uh, Syrian and Iraq refugee crises, they've not received anything like the same degree of support. Yeah, they're saying nobody died there. So why is there so much going on? Uh, You can't make anybody happy. (laughs) Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. We've been hearing a lot about measles cases all over the country, and they're starting to spread everywhere, all over the world as well. We finally found a patient, Zero, who infected 39 people in Michigan. He was a traveler who picked it up from Brooklyn, took it to Detroit, and the crazy thing is he felt sick and went to the doctor, but the doctor had never seen a case of measles before and misdiagnosed him. For more on this, we spoke to Lena Sun. She's the national health reporter for The Washington Post to talk about how the measles are getting around. There were uh, measles outbreaks in New York, and the epicenter was in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. And last month, a traveler who was visiting Brooklyn and had been staying there for about two months decided to drive to Detroit to um, raise money for charity. And on his way, he felt sick and saw a doctor but the doctor had never seen measles before. That is crazy the man fever. Yeah. yeah. Well, you think about it. Measles was eliminated in the United States in 2000. So you have to be an older doctor to have seen measles cases. Right. So if you're a doc, you know, of a certain age, you probably have never seen measles. Plus, measles symptoms are very similar to the cold and flu. It's fever and cough and a runny nose. And if you're a doctor who's never seen measles, measles may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you're looking at somebody who's sick during cold and flu season. And he didn't have the rash at that point. So the doctor diagnosed him with bronchitis. What happened after that where they really started figuring it out? He was given an antibiotic by the doctor. But the next day, he called the doctor back and complained about a rash. The doctor initially thought that this was a reaction to the antibiotic and gave the guy a different antibiotic. But then the doctor thought a little bit more. Hmm, this was a traveler from Brooklyn. He had these symptoms. Maybe he has measles. So he called the health department and left a voicemail um, with the health department along with the traveler's cell phone information. But the health department wasn't able to reach the traveler because the traveler's disposable cell phone had a corrupted SIM card. Wow. So (laughs) they had to jump into action. I think he ended up getting 39 people sick with the measles after that, mostly adults in that case. And, And as we started off saying, you know, this came from New York. He brought it to Michigan. But do we know how it started there in New York at all? New York has said part of the reason why New York's outbreak has been so hard to come under control is that 
New York has had multiple patient zeros. They've had multiple travelers getting sick from travel to Israel and coming back infected with measles in the community and getting people sick. So when you do an infectious disease outbreak, you have to know where the person was and then everybody else who was in contact with this person and, and then go work backwards. So in Michigan's case, there were hundreds and hundreds of potential contacts that health department folks and investigators had to track down. There's already been more measles cases in 2019 than any year in the last five years. And it's still, it's barely April. I think in 2014, there were 667 cases of measles. So we could potentially reach that number. Tell us how infectious the disease actually is. Measles virus is very, very small, teeny, teeny, tiny. So those droplets hang in the air. That's why it's so infectious. You can get it through breathing the air after somebody has sneezed or coughed or if after measles virus has been on a contaminated service. So if I have measles and I walk into this drugstore and then you come in after me and you have not been vaccinated, up to two hours after you know I've left, there is a 90% chance that you will get sick. And that's what the Michigan Patient Zero was doing. He was going to kosher stores. He was going to services. He was going into people's homes and raising money with his fundraisers. So he was all over the place infecting a lot of people. We're in for some more news about this. Uh, I just got an alert not too long ago that said in Europe, it's also getting pretty crazy. The World Health Organization said that measles cases have increased 300% worldwide in the first three months of 2019 compared to the first three months in 2018. In Madagascar, there have been 1,200 measles deaths. And in Europe, in France and Italy, there are big outbreaks. So if you're thinking about going on spring break and summer vacation, you know you should probably make sure that you're fully vaccinated. Lena Sun, national health reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, an update on Operation Varsity Blues. Actress Lori Loughlin and her husband, Massimo Giannulli, have pled not guilty in the college bribery case. After adding charges of conspiracy to commit money laundering, they both face a minimum sentence of four years and nine months in prison. We spoke to state and criminal defense attorney Lou Shapiro for more on this and who are the next targets, students that might have known about their parents' activities. But we started off by talking about why Lori Loughlin and her husband might be pleading not guilty. So the confusion lies in the fact that they're not jumping at the offer right out of the head. But in truth and reality, in federal cases like this, pleas are rarely taken from the beginning in the first month or two. Generally, a case will last one to two years before one of our clients will say, okay, I think I'm ready to to plead out on this one. It's the fact that Huffman took a plea that really changed the landscape of this. Once she took her plea, then it put pressure on Laughlin to seriously consider, well, if I want to align with other people that are taking early responsibility and using that for leniency at their sentencing, maybe I need to be doing that too. And therein lies a confusion in the public right now. There's a lot of differences between the cases between Felicity Huffman and Lori Lachlan. Among them is the amount of money 
that they put into this. Felicity Huffman allegedly paid $15,000 to have her daughter's SAT scores uh, rigged. So her charges are a lot less. Her already pleading guilty, she faces a minimum of four months in prison. She doesn't have a criminal record, so it's likely to go kind of smoothly for her, let's say. Lori Lachlan and her husband ended up paying $500,000 to get their two daughters into USC. So the money is different there. They held out. They got the extra charge of conspiracy to commit money laundering. And now they face a minimum of four years and nine months in prison. So right off the bat, it doesn't seem like that was a good deal. Well, the issue is just because the new charges have been added does not prevent Lori Lachlan from still taking that original offer that was extended to her by the prosecution. That offer that was originally extended is still on the table to my knowledge. So the fact that new charges were added is not necessarily a game changer in the case. The fact that one paid 15000 while another paid 500000 while it does make a theoretical difference when you apply that to the federal sentencing guidelines, I think in the totality of the circumstances in this case, I don't think that's the driving factor here in the deal or sentencing. I think it's the fact that the actual conduct is at issue. In other words, the, the fact that parents use their wealth, use their influence to bribe, etc. in the scheme of things. How much they use, I don't think that's the driving factor here. And that's why I, I don't think the 500000 versus the fifteen is going to make that big of a difference in terms of their outcomes of sentencing. From what I hear in discussions going around, when federal prosecutors throw charges at somebody, they have a lot of evidence to back that up already. They're not going to just throw out a charge kind of willy-nilly. And Lori Lachlan, her husband, pleading not guilty. I'm sure there's other parents that are doing that. How are they expecting to navigate this? As a criminal defense attorney, would you advise your clients to do something like this? If the federal prosecutors have so much evidence against them, it seems like it's a hard fight. Well, that's true that the feds are very good at doing their homework. Generally, when they bring a case, it's an open and shut deal. And that's why their conviction rate is extremely high. At the same time, a client is entitled to make an informed decision before deciding whether they're going to plead guilty to a crime. And for Lachlan and her attorneys to want to review all the discovery and evidence to then make that decision, whether it's in their client's best interest to do this, there's really nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's the norm. And that's why, while it may seem puzzling to the public that she's not jumping at the first offer on the table, it would be quite strange for her to jump at that, in a sense. You made a great point when Felicity Huffman, because they're the two most high-profile people in this, there's obviously other very rich people connected to this whole scheme, but they're the most recognizable names. And when Felicity Huffman copped her plea deal, everybody's like, well, why isn't everybody else? You know, it kind of does change the dynamic at that point. The other thing that's been happening is that the Wall Street Journal is reporting that prosecutors are sending letters to young adults who were believed to have known about the schemes that were aimed to help them get into college. These target letters don't necessarily mean that the students or graduates will face charges, but it could be some type of squeeze tactic, maybe get some of the other parents to plead guilty. What do we know about this? Well, the word on the street is that there are a lot more names in the discovery that have yet to be thoroughly investigated and released to the public. So there appears to be an ongoing investigation. We're probably going to hear about more names and individuals that were involved or maybe flirted with the idea of it. And the prosecution and the FBI have to figure out who was really involved and who may be do about it, but didn't say anything about it, or who was somewhat involved, they have to decide who else is going to be caught and entangled in this web. Lou Shapiro, state and criminal defense attorney, thank you very much for joining us. You got it.
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.